Christchurch, New Malden, 6th of June 2021. David Lofman speaking on The Summary Love God and neighbour with everything you've got. The Torah says to be a follower of God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. God set the bar really high for the children of Israel. And Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees and experts of the law, recorded in Matthew and in Mark, was at the temple in Jerusalem, repeats the same commandments when he's asked by an expert in the law, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? It's Tuesday when he's asked that question. It's been two days since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to a huge crowd praising God and welcoming him. The teacher, the miracle worker who casts out demons, heals the sick and raises the dead to life. In three days, he'll be arrested, sentenced and executed. He's in the last days of his earthly life. Every moment counts. Every word matters. And so Matthew, and so in Matthew and Mark's Gospel, he tells them how it is. There's no compromises. There's no ducking or diving. Do this, he says. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, that shut them up. They weren't expecting an answer like that. They probably expected to be battered and challenged as the Sadducees had been. But Jesus' answer was orthodox and conventional. It's the kind of answer any of the Pharisees and experts of the law would have given if they'd been asked the same question. What is the greatest commandment? They'd been debating among themselves for many years which of their 613 commandments was the greatest. Nate Bramson refers to the greatest commandments in his book, What If Jesus Really Meant What He Said? It's the book that has inspired this current series of sermons. In Nate Bramson's book, he explores how to be a disciple of Jesus. How do we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. There's been a number of answers to that question over the last few weeks here at Christchurch. Three weeks ago, my Katie talked about us taking up our cross if we are to be a follower of Jesus. Last week, she spoke on how important it is for us to trust God. And two weeks ago, Ruth talked about how being a disciple of Jesus means not judging others, forgiving sins and loving our enemies. This morning I'm going to share a couple of thoughts I have about how the greatest commandment love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind 
and the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself, can help us walk in the footsteps of Jesus. How do these commandments help us to be good disciples? We've got to know. We can't let it pass. Jesus says, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Nate Bramson says, this isn't easy. He says, to do this, we must set aside a life that satisfies our own needs and desires. He says, we should expect suffering. Bramson says, to do this means we must we may well be required to take actions that are totally opposed to the main morality and the fashionable ideas of the time. He tells us we must fit into the life God calls us to lead rather than fitting the gospel around our comfortable and safe lives. And we must make decisions and take actions that Break down barriers, barriers of race, barriers of religion, barriers of gender, barriers of ethnicity. These ideas are repeated throughout the book. Bramson doesn't want us to forget these commandments, that they are the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the Jews the Pharisees surrounding Jesus on that day at the temple. They didn't forget who they were. In the greatest commandment, Jesus is quoting from the Torah, the Jewish law. The first verse comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5. Devout Jews would have known that verse very well. It's part of the opening verse of the Shema, which is a really important prayer. It contains the main principles of Judaism. It was repeated twice a day, every day. And even today, it's recited during the morning and evening services. It's a prayer that contains God's promises to his people and God's expectations of obedience to him. Jews aren't likely to forget who their God is what he has promised them and what God expected from them. For not only is this prayer recited twice a day, but it's also posted on the outside doorframe of every Jewish home. It's written on a piece of parchment and sealed into a little decorative case or box, then screwed to the doorframe of the house. It's called a mezuzah. Also, in case you should forget God's promises and their responsibilities, a mezuzah is pinned to every interior doorframe within a Jewish home. Every day, there are plenty of other reminders to remind Jewish people who they are, God's promises to them, and his expectations of them. So, I kind of wonder, what do we have to remind us of God every moment of the day? What do you have to remind you that you are a child of the living God? I know a story. 
that exemplifies those two verses of the greatest commandment. It's a familiar story. I heard it years ago, soon after I became a Christian. I've never forgotten it. It's the story of Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Franciscan priest in 1941. He was a prisoner in Auschwitz for opposing the Nazi regime and helping Polish and Jewish refugees. While in the camp, he ministered as a priest to other prisoners and suffered for his work. Following a prisoner's escape, all the prisoners from the hut the escaped man came from were assembled outside. There, ten men were randomly selected to die as punishment for the one prisoner's escape. The means of execution was slow and tortuous. The prisoners were sent down into a subterranean chamber and left there to starve to death. But as the prisoners were about to enter the shaft that led down into that underground chamber, one of the men selected shouted out, he screamed for mercy. I'm married. I have young children. Hearing his protests, Colby stepped forward from the crowd of prisoners assembled and volunteered to take the man's place. Incredibly, the substitution was allowed. Usually, during the days and weeks of that slow execution, Prisoners and guards passing by the metal grill that led to the subterranean chamber would normally hear desperate screams and shouts from the dying men. They heard insults. They heard the con condemnation of the guards above. However, on this particular execution, for the weeks of those men's slow and agonising deaths, Passers-by would hear gentle and soothing whispers, prayers and psalms and hymns. These quiet voices rose up out of the metal grill that covered the chamber. This went on, and as the days and weeks passed, the voices became weaker, then fewer as the condemned men began to die. Eventually, there was just the one lone voice of Maximilian Kobe, Colby. Eventually that voice also grew fainter until it was clear he was dead. If ever there was a story in the 20th century that exemplified the two greatest commandments, surely that story is it. Colby a Franciscan priest gave up his own life to save a Jew. He transformed the short lives of his fellow prisoners, probably also Jews, who faced hopelessness and utter despair. Colby turned that execution cell into a place of love, even peace, perhaps even, incredibly, forgiveness. Colby turned that execution cell into a place of worship. 
It's an incredibly extreme story. But this is the journey. This is the path we have chosen to follow. And we must be prepared to give up everything if we are to walk in Jesus' footsteps. Is that something you're prepared to do? The story of the greatest commandment can also be found in Luke's Gospel. It was the reading that we had just earlier. In Luke, it takes place long before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. In Luke's Gospel, the account of the greatest commandment forms really an introduction to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's recorded differently in Luke. Jesus prompts the questioner, an expert in the law, to answer his own question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The expert in the law replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus commends him on his answer. However, the expert in the law isn't satisfied by that answer and asks Jesus a second question. Who's my neighbour? Jesus answers the question by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. I think Jesus' reply is so shocking so provocative it would have been so utterly offensive to his listeners I'm surprised they didn't lynch him right there and then in telling this story of the Good Samaritan Jesus is repeating a commandment he gave earlier in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount where he says you have heard that it was said love your neighbour and hate your enemy but I tell you love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. One way that story of the Good Samaritan is so challenging, so provocative, is by casting the hero of the story as a Samaritan. Jesus and his friends had recently passed through a Samaritan village, but they were treated badly by the Samaritans and left that village without food or shelter. Jews and Samaritans were hated enemies. Samaritans were the remnant of Jewish people left behind when the Assyrians enslaved the people of Israel and sent them into exile. That scattered, disparate group of Jews soon lost their way. They intermarried with Assyrians and others in that region. They had the Torah, but their worship was a cocktail of Jewish and Assyrian and other Gentile religions. The Samaritans did not recognise the sacrificial system that the Jews had at the temple in Jerusalem. And I think that the Samaritans in Jesus' day were a reminder of the Jews of the failure of God's people to keep his commands. 
the Samaritans reminded the Jewish people of their exile, reminded them of the breakdown of the relationship between God's people and their God. But here is Jesus, holding up their enemy as merciful and compassionate. He put his own life at risk to look after and care for a man, a stranger, probably a Jew, the enemy. This Samaritan only saw a man in need and in this act of kindness he was walking in the footsteps of Jesus and despite his separation from God I hope he'd become a son of his father in heaven. Perhaps we should prepare for that day when we walk across the road to help someone Perhaps we should prepare for the day we are called to enter that appalling subterranean prison cell. What will you have with you when that day, if that day, comes? I think that story has been niggling in my mind for the last 30 or so years since I've been a Christian. Because as I was writing the sermon, I realised... I've been kind of preparing myself in recent years for such an appalling event. I've begun memorising psalms and verses from the Bible. I know about five psalms off by heart. I I choose verses that can be adapted as breathing prayers. The Bible, at least the translations that we use, are full of them. They're mostly verses that refer to the reader's relationship with God and can be broken down into four simple phrases. I hope there's one coming up there. There it is. This is is from Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Pretty simple. See, what I do in the mornings is... um, I repeat the verse perhaps 10, maybe even 20 times. And when I inhale, I think, be still. And when I breathe out, I think and know. And inhale, thinking that I, and finally exhale, am God. I've come across these verses just in my normal course of reading the Bible, and every so often... So like a light kind of shines. I can see very clearly it's another breathing prayer. A prayer that links to my relationship with God. Um, A verse that is quite short and can be easily broken down into four simple sections. Oh God, how majestic, or how majestic is your name in all the earth? Here's another one. I hope that I will never need to recite this verse in the extreme suffering, anything like that of Maximilian Colby. But I pray that if ever I was in circumstances so appalling, I pray that God, my loving Heavenly Father, would give me the strength, the faith to overcome that situation, whatever it may be. And that I'd be able to recall verses like this one, 
to comfort and to give hope to me and to those suffering with me. Thank you.